Hello and welcome to The Long Lunch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance. From complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. It's the stuff you talk about during your training, or it might be when you're at the coffee shop enjoying a nice latte and something else. We'll break it down and invite a guest expert or athlete to add their perspective. Today, it's episode 51A, Can You Outrun a Bad Diet? And we're joined by Gay Rutherford, who's a sports dietitian based in Tasmania, and she works with the Tasmanian Institute of Sport, as well as a wide range of recreational through to elite level athletes. And what we're going to do today is discuss how common this actual question is in athletes. So we'll get a perspective from Gay, Al and myself. And what actually do we mean or do athletes perhaps mean when they ask that question? What is outrunning a bad diet? And how could it actually be reframed to perhaps be a bit more constructive? So before we get stuck into that, how are you going now? How's your um, lead up to Christmas? Yeah, lead up to Christmas is busier than I would have liked, Steph. Mm-hmm. But we did manage to sneak away for a couple of days last week down to San Remo near Phillip Island. So yep. that was good. Weather wasn't so good, but that's it's a bit okay. Windy. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, your PhD all finished now, but how are you going? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, Al. Um, I am enjoying a little bit more of a, I guess, a lighter week or so. Um, so still doing doing work, but more so having some time to breathe, which you don't always get to to do and yeah just this weekend actually I had my um uh, my dad and his partner down and I thought we were going to a place down near Geelong and I thought it was only like an hour away ended up being a couple hours drive and they'd already you know done like an eight hour drive to come and see us and the next day I took them on this two hour drive there and two hour drive back but anyway it was all worth it because we purchased a, a tandem kayak which um we're stoked about and we're going to get Cooper, you know, on the kayak and, and get him out in it. But I was hoping to maybe get out during this week, but it's pretty shitty weather. Mm, it is. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No. Not so appealing. No. no. Yeah. Announcements and updates from us, Al? Yeah, there's a couple. We've had had a few sort of updates and announcements over the last few weeks, but they keep coming. So some of you may have seen on social media just this week, actually, that we've got a new website coming for next year. So thelongmunch.com. There's nothing on there as yet, apart from just links to the podcast, but that will have um, an increasing amount of content on there in 2023. So that's something that you and I, Steph, are meeting about and working out how to put all of that together. And so there'll be a bunch of sort of written content that complements the podcast and summarises some of the topics, uh, and there'll be some other content that we'll announce when the time comes. Yep. Uh, and I guess the other main announcement is this is our last podcast for the year, our last episode. 
So we're taking a bit of a, a longer break than we have in the past. I think it's actually the longest break we've ever taken from the podcast since it started <laughs> back in November 2020. So we'll be back on Thursday, the 19th of January. So yeah, pretty much a month that we'll be away from the podcast. We will still be active on social media during that time. And some of you may have seen sort of the some of the new content that we've been doing on social media the last couple of weeks, particularly on Instagram. But to an extent on Facebook and Twitter as well. So that'll still be going between now and then. But yes, no podcast after this one until sort of mid-January. We would have liked to be a bit earlier, but uh, also we've got guests that we need to fit around their schedules as well. And they've also got some time off over the early part of the new year. So we have to respect that. And um, yeah, we'll be back early January. Yeah. And I think they'll our listeners will appreciate it. The, the longer time because it, it gives us time to to build the content that we're you know we've got planned so um, we're mm. hoping that that's going to be really useful to our listeners so yeah bear with us for for that and then just a reminder that you can find us on social media at the long lunch so please send us through any feedback or questions that you do have either on Instagram Facebook or Twitter that's Let's get into today's episode, yeah? Yeah, yep. So our question is, can you outrun a bad diet? And as you said before, we're joined by sports dietitian Gay Rutherford. So Gay is an advanced sports dietitian who lives in Hobart in Tasmania. And she works with the Tasmanian Institute of Sport, as well as in private practice with athletes from a variety of different sports, uh, but also from recreational all the way through to you know, elite and Olympic athletes. She is a past president of Sports Dietitians Australia. She was the president until about a week ago, actually, uh, but she's just stepped down from that role. And we'll also speak to her about this, but she was part of the support team for the Tokyo Paralympic Games, and she was travelling specifically with the cycling team to their hub out in Izu, um, which was a, a little bit separated from, from the rest of the main village there in Tokyo. And some of you might recall our podcast episode with Alistair Donahoe was actually recorded from his room in Izu at the village there. Mm. So just a, a final thing before we get into this episode, Steph, uh, we're talking about, you know, this concept of can you outrun a bad diet and whether that's actually a, a worthwhile question to be asking or whether there's a better way to be asking it. But I guess this conversation will talk about things around sort of body composition, the people's relationship with food, exercise versus you know, calories in versus calories out, those kinds of things. And this may be triggering for some people that have experienced or are going through experiences of disordered eating or eating disorders and may trigger some sort of unhealthy thoughts. So if that's if you think that might be you, then it might be a good idea to, to skip this episode, have an extra week off, and then uh, mm-hmm. come back in mid-January. We'll be talking about a topic that is completely unrelated to this. Uh, the other thing, I guess, is if you do listen to this and you do find it um, a little bit concerning, then you can talk to the, uh, here in Australia, the Butterfly Foundation's National Helpline on 1800-ED-HOPE or 1-800-334-673, and they provide free phone, email, and web support and referral for individuals that might be experiencing eating disorders or at risk of, or someone who has maybe a family member who's in that situation. Uh, but with that said, Steph, we'll get into this episode and our interview with Gay Rutherford. Let's do it. All right, Gay Rutherford, welcome to the Long Munch. How are you going down there in Hobart? Is it as chilly as it is here in Melbourne? 
I suspect it might even be a little bit chillier, Alan. We're on the cusp of having a very nasty southerly come in. And um, I feel like the snow has just melted off Mount Wellington, but it could come back again any minute now. I was going to say, you uh, might get a white Christmas. You could. We have, and it certainly could happen. There are lots of (laughs) things that are lovely about living in Tassie, but perhaps the heat is not one of those things. (laughs) No, definitely not. So you're obviously based down in Hobart and you do some work with the Tasmanian Institute of Sport down there. Mm-hmm. Do you do some, um, we'll talk about that in, in just a sec, but do you do other work outside of the Institute with other types of athletes as well? Yeah, sure, Alan. Look, I'm really lucky. I've got a fabulous home office and I also work one day a week with a fantastic team of physiotherapists in South Hobart down here. So in both of those places, I get the opportunity to work with a really big, broad spectrum of athletes or active active people, young, old, in between, which is really great. Um, I'm feeling really fortunate lately, actually. I've had the opportunity to work with a couple of athletes who have been really motivating. One made me think of you, Dr. Steph. Uh, she's about to head up to the Cosy Myler Ultra Trail mm-hmm. happening up at Kosciuszko this weekend, and I'm really crossing all my fingers that it's a great adventure out for her. She's had a really long build-up for it, and it's really been a fantastic journey to be on the on the journey with her, um, and I recently had another gentleman come back from the Hawaii Ironman at Kona. He finished ninth in his age group um, over there, and it was really exciting to be involved with them. But um, a lot of the other people that I work with are often uh, people that kids have grown up from home and they're just trying to get back into sport or have decided that they want to try and run the Point to Pinnacle next year and what could they do in that space or, you know, lots of different athletes and active people. So, yeah, I feel really fortunate to have such a wide base of, of athletes to work with and constantly exposed to new sports and new things that you've not heard of before that you get to upskill and learn about. So it's a, it's a fun place to work. Yeah, awesome. And tell us about your role with the Tasmanian Institute of Sport. Ah, look, I think um, we're a small institute compared to some of the mainland counterparts, but I guess the the flip side of that is it's nice to be... be involved um, I guess with a you know a small group and the key sports that we have are sports that I really love I guess we have cycling which is one of my my big loves for sure we have a great track and field program here as well and some really great track and field athletes involved in that the hockey program is really interesting I don't have hockey skills that did play in high school but uh, no one's going to call me up for the state team at all soon <laughs> um, our rowing program is fantastic and since I've taken up surf ski paddling and I'm out on the water early in the morning when the rowers are out there I have a whole new appreciation for what it's like to be a rower in the elements in in Tassie um, I'm missing a a cohort. But we have another group who I'll remember later and be embarrassed that I've forgotten. We have a few individual athletes as well. We're probably a little bit unique in that whilst we're a really small institute, we're spread across two locations. We have a base in Launceston and another base in Hobart um, just to try and cover, I guess, the give capacity for athletes that are at different ends of the state. But yeah, it's a really great team to work with. I think I first started with the TIS in about 2008 when I first relocated back to Tassie after a stint in Melbourne. And it's um, been a good journey and hopefully they'll keep me in the mix for a bit longer. Mm, nice one. There's been some some big name athletes come through the TIS over the years, particularly in cycling and triathlon. You know, the names like Richie Port, uh, George Baker, Amy Cure on the track as well. 
Mm, absolutely, we have. And I feel this extra personal connection to some of them, a few of the people that have come through the ranks, people like Jake Bertwistle in, in Triathlon mm. and Richie Port as well, started off their career as members of the Junior Fairbrother Development Triathlon Squad uh, <laughs> and got to wear, that's my family business construction Fairbrother, I got to wear the Fairbrother logo for a very small point in time. And Dad's had a very long supportive connection with Amy Cure, supported her as a sponsor for, for quite a number of years. He has one of her skin suits that she signed post one of her Olympic medals hanging up in his gym as a bit of extra motivation. Mm, awesome. So I guess, you know, you've had a, a wide variety of experience there, both with elite and, you know, quite recreational athletes as well. And I think that's one of the reasons that Steph and I really wanted to chat to you on this topic today is to get you know, all of those different perspectives, because I think, you know, some of the answers as we'll get into will be different depending on, you know, what, what sort of perspective that you're looking at it from. But before that, you also travelled to Tokyo for the Paralympics to support the cycling team there. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh, it was an amazing experience, Alan and Steph. I was so fortunate and a huge thank you to Siobhan Crochet, the lead dietitian with Paralympics for inviting me along and including me in that experience. I felt really blessed to be a part of that. Hats off to her for her memory. She seemed to remember we went through Deakin when we were doing our undergrad together and she remembered of all things that I'd studied Japanese in my first Bachelor of Arts undergraduate a thousand years ago. Can't say I remember very much of it, but she remembered that and reached out to me and said, well, you know, would you be interested? Uh, so, yeah, it was great. It was just, uh, I think we weren't, the cycling team weren't based in the main village. We had a, a separate cycling subsite. It was too far to travel from the main village to where the track cycling and then the road cycling events were happening. So I got to be in this sort of special little hub just with the team and it really gave you an opportunity to get to know the athletes uh, a little bit better and just to appreciate the the logistics and the amount of um, support that goes around them. The the team headed up by Waza, um, Warren McDonald, was, was just amazing. They just had so much support for the athletes, really great talks in and around, you know, starting the day and ending the day, keeping the athletes mentally, you know, really supported and well prepared. And um, it was, you know, a really fantastic learning opportunity for me to see what might be possible. I feel like that's not the gold standard for me now. If you were supporting a, a team, what you could do in terms of nutrition support and then other support around them in that space. So, you know, I feel really fortunate to have had that experience. And then when the track team finished up and the cycling team moved on to the road site, they didn't need a dietitian with them at that point. So I got to go back and have the last week and a half back in the main um, Olympic village as well, Paralympic village, I should say. Um, and again, that was a really interesting dynamic to see how you would cater for food for a, a big team in an environment that was full of COVID at the time and we had a lot of restrictions on not allowed to leave the village and not allowed to get food from the dining hall and, you know, the way Vaughty had planned the food coming in and how the dietitian team, we would help support them in the background was really fantastic. I think I excelled in my capacity to make toasted sandwiches for three or four hours in a row. That was <laughs> quite a good skill to bring home. And I also now really appreciate every time I turn a toasted sandwich maker or a kettle on here in Australia with our Australian voltage because the half-strength Japanese voltage means toasting a sandwich takes about it felt like 10 minutes each time. It was so slow. <laughs> <laughs> so um, our, our topic today uh, was a question that came in from a listener of the podcast and it wasn't worded exactly uh, like this, but it was pretty much what we kind of put it to. So can I outrun a bad diet? 
So I guess firstly, is this a question you hear in your work with either elite or recreational athletes? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question, Steph, and I can get how um, one of the things when we were talking earlier about it, it it's a, um, a tricky question in, in a lot of ways and you could interpret it to mean a few different different things but you know certainly it, to me the first thing I think of when I hear that is this sort of concept of thinking that diet is calories or kilojoules depending on what unit you want to think of it in in and exercise is calories or kilojoules being burnt out so is everything that you're doing from a exercise perspective boiled down to burning off calories that you're consuming and so is the quality of those or what other things do they look about doesn't really matter so in different shapes or forms if that's the way we interpret the question absolutely we I hear that uh, from a variety of different athletes and I, I had to perhaps cringe under my pillow a little bit and think you know I felt like I myself has lived the experience before I was a sports dietitian it's a second career round for me I got into it as someone that was quite passionate about exercise and I'd been a um, a triathlete. I got into triathlon in my early 20s as a way of trying to get fit and lose weight because I'd drunk too much and had a bad diet at my uni first time around and thought it was really time to get my life together and get back on on form. And at that time, a lot of my exercise was around uh, weight loss, burning calories, and you wouldn't fuel yourself for rides and you wouldn't eat when you didn't want to. And I think my coach, before I went to the 1998 World Triathlon Championships in Lausanne sent me to a sports dietitian because I think he thought I wasn't eating enough um, and she quite rightly pointed out things that I needed to do in terms of dialing up my carbohydrate intake but I didn't really take that on board and then 2001 I was training for the Foster Ironman and that's was it Aprilish kind of time frame Easter leads up to that and I was having a really good in enjoyment of eating the variety of Easter eggs out <laughs> at that time and thinking, well, I probably won't eat my proper meals or I won't eat this or I won't eat that proper snack because I've just chowed down on all those Cadbury cream eggs and weren't they yummy. And I had a terrible race. So I must have, in hindsight, I think now that I know a lot more about sports nutrition, been the living example of the low-carb, high-fat diet and did it work for me? And no, it certainly didn't. So I guess I bring that lens to the question when I hear it posed to me from athletes across a various different spectrum. I think when I was thinking about it, probably a um, one of the elite cricketers that I worked with once, one of our elite long-distance runners. Um, and then to some extent, some of our adolescent teenagers, I think, that are probably at that point in time where they're not metabolism hasn't yet caught up with them and they're still in that space where they haven't learned a lot about their diet. Um, and then some um, perhaps premenopausal women that come to me that are really using their exercise more as a, as a weight loss thing than anything else. They're the, that's the key groups that I think of when I hear that question that have come to me over the years with some shape or form of can I outrun, ride, cycle, swim, whatever their exercise might be. Can I out-exercise a bad diet? Mm, yep. And um, what's your actual initial reaction to that question? So when you get asked that question, what's your reaction? Well, look, I think that's always a really good idea if you can always reframe everything in the positive. Like I think I've been a big fan of the Dilbert, Dilbert comic from working in an open plan office once and they had a wonderful 
comic once that was really around how to turn a, a problem into an opportunity. So my first thought, I guess, sometimes is thinking, look, what a wonderful opportunity to leverage this and raise this athlete's um, opportunity windows beyond just food is fuel that must be burned. Let's think about the different ways that they can learn about how they can respond to their tr- their training, get their adaptations, get their building blocks coming in, improve their mood, improve their sleep. And I think then that when you've got that as your base motivation, that's such a more positive way to talk to your athletes and get them excited about food because if you're only ever talking to them about food being there's x number of kilojoules in this serve of broccoli versus x number of kilojoules in a slice of bread that's a really um, depressing and negative place to work with someone so you know I think it's great this is a initially I might cringe but then you think great what a wonderful window of opportunity to start to take this conversation down a whole lot of different paths that this person, when they first walked into your office, wasn't wasn't even on their radar. Mm, yep, yep. So going more into um, using it to help educate them further. Yep. And so, what about you, Al? What do you think about when you know you've been given the question, "Can I outrun a, a bad diet?" Mm, yeah, I guess similar to Gay, it's sort of that you cringe a little bit inside and try not to <laughs> show that on the outside. Um, but I guess if you if you think about that question, there's probably the two words in there that I guess leave a lot of room for interpretation, and they're the words outrun and the word bad. So if we think about what the word outrun means, I guess you know, Gay sort of talked about that before. It's sort of the, you know the the energy we expend, the calories or the kilojoules during exercise versus what we consume from food, and you know, obviously the outrun suggests that the the exercise calories are going to be greater than the the energy that we're consuming to a certain extent and then I guess the bad part that's that's probably the big one and you know what does bad what does a bad diet mean are we talking about and I think you know coming back to what Gay was saying you know most people I think initially assume that a bad diet means a diet that has too many calories or kilojoules in it too much energy but a bad diet you know, you could ask 10 different people, what does that mean? And you probably get 10 completely different answers. Is it quantity of like the amount of food that you eat? Is it the type of food you eat? Is it the amount of calories in the food? Is it how processed or unprocessed the food is? You know, it could be all of those things. And so we need to, to I guess, define what we actually mean by a bad diet if we want to be able to answer that question so yeah that can that can work out in a a myriad of different ways and I think as Gay said that's an opportunity to really reframe it and I think the the two parts you're reframing is that concept of you know using exercise for the sake of burning calories and then the second part is you know the person's definition of a bad diet and what that actually means. Mm, Yep and so before we talk about maybe ways that we can reframe this question that may be helpful now, can you explain a bit more about the outrunning part of the, the question? So is is this different if you're a recreational or an elite athlete? Yeah. So I guess the the outrun part, as I said, is sort of the energy expenditure from exercise and the energy that we consume from food. So obviously the energy we consume from food is pretty kind of self-explanatory. Food has a certain number of kilojoules or calories and we can argue about you know dietary quality uh, a bit later on. But if we look at the exercise side of things I guess we then have to quantify you know the energy that people expend during exercise and there's lots of different ways you can attempt to do that some are more accurate than others 
Uh, we've talked a little bit about this in, in past episodes, but if we look at, for example, in cycling, if you have a power meter, you know, one watt is equivalent. It's a measure of energy expenditure. So it's equivalent to 3.6 kilojoules per hour um, or about 0.9 calories per hour. But we need to remember that that's the, the energy going through the crank when you're cycling. So it's not the total energy expenditure. It's only about 22% of the total energy expenditure somewhere between 20 and 25%, depending on the person. So we need to take that number, whatever it is, and then divide it by 22% to get the total energy expenditure over whatever period of time. So if you go out there for an hour, you're riding at 200 watts, you take your 200, multiply it by your 3.6, so you get kilojoules per hour, and then divide that by 22%, and then you'll get the total kilojoules for that hour that you've expended in total. Um, in, in terms of running, it's a little bit different. There's a general rule of thumb of about one calorie per kilogram of body weight per kilometer run. And that seems to be fairly independent of running speed. So it doesn't matter if it's you know 8Ks an hour or 20Ks an hour. Um, that seems to hold true, more or less. A little bit different if you're walking. Energy expenditure varies at different types of walking speeds. But for running, it seems to be pretty consistent, at least on a flat sort of level, hard surface. Swimming is highly variable, and this is probably the trickiest one to estimate. And we also know that elite swimmers are much more efficient or much more energy efficient because their, you know, their stroke technique is, is a lot better. Um, and so you know, recreational swimmers will expend a lot more energy for the same speed in the water compared to elite swimmers. Um, but obviously your elite swimmers are gonna be going out there probably swimming either faster or a lot longer than your recreational swimmers. So overall, they're probably gonna be expending more energy anyway. I guess if we put that all together and, and coming back to your question, Steph, about you know elite versus recreational athletes, you know, elite athletes can put out a much greater absolute energy expenditure. So burn more calories or kilojoules for the same relative intensity. And again, we were talking about that with Jason Coop a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. If you have two riders working at the same sort of training zone or percentage of their VO2 max, well, you know, Elliot Kipchoge's VO2 max is a lot higher than mine. So if we're both running at, you know, 70% of our VO2 max, he's running a hell of a lot faster than I am. And therefore he's expending a hell of a lot more energy than I am, even though we're working at the same sort of relative effort. So, you know, we can think about a zone two ride or run or something like that, or whatever you want to in, in you know, whatever training speak that you use, but that's going to mean different things for elite athletes versus recreational athletes when you describe it in sort of relative intensity terms, the actual calorie expenditure will be greater in the elite guys. And then I guess obviously the elite guys, as a generalization, will have more time that they can dedicate to training in a week. So that effect is compounded even more. They're burning more calories per hour of training, but they're probably training more hours per week as well. So I guess you put that together, the more you train and the more elite you are, the easier it is gonna to be to outrun, quote unquote, a typical dietary intake. And the elite athletes obviously will achieve this much more easily, even for the same number of hours of training compared to a recreational athlete, because they can just put out more power or more speed. I guess if we come back to, you know, that outrunning concept, you know, we have particularly, I think, more in the recreational exercise space is where you tend to see this. You've got your personal trainers and the you know, media, men's health, women's health, all those kind of things love to make comparisons of energy expenditure versus the energy intake from different types of foods and say, you know, that a 70 kilo person has to run you know, 12 kilometers an hour for 70 minutes to burn off the Biscoff Kit Kat 
that you ate this morning, Steph. I know you love those. Um, <laughs> and and I, I guess do. that's where those sort of, if we think about, you know, calorie tracking apps and things, that's where that kind of net calorie function comes in on things like MyFitnessPal is, you know, you put in a certain amount of exercise and it offsets almost the the energy intake from food and actually adjust your target for that. And it kind of comes back to that mentality of outrunning the diet that you're eating, whether it's good, bad or otherwise. Mm, yeah. Um, and so, Gay, back to you, what's your thoughts about this kind of mindset to nutrition and exercise in terms of like earning your food? I think like Alan's kind of painted there, there are so many different scenarios when it can come up that I feel like my thoughts are very much dictated by the individual presentation and, and what you're getting. If, as, as Alan said, this sort of idea of understanding what's the definition of bad for your client is and they come in and their definition of bad is feeling like, from my perspective, that they're falling down the orthorexia hole of making a lot of judgments around food and feeling nervous around eating certain food groups or eating something that's a little bit processed or something like that. In in that sense, I feel like the um, my thoughts there are more around how can I help this athlete's mental health and their longer-term relationship with food and their psychological um, reference point. You know, how can I help from that perspective and use this as an opportunity to start to break some of those negative judgmental thoughts that they're having about food and that state of anxiety that they're always living in around food. If I can make a, a win on that perspective, I think that's really impactful for the long term. If it is that client, though, that's really eating anything and everything but has got a definition of a bad diet for them is that they really can't, can't, I want to say can't be bothered, but that's not always the case. They haven't prioritised meal prepping and getting meals ready and they're getting home late from their long run after work or uni or school or whatever it is and they're just doing Macca's drive-through or quick takeaway or living on toasted sandwiches and two-minute noodles because they're quick and easy and there's not a lot of pots and pans to wash up with that, then I feel like my take there is more around how do I start to help and educate this person to prioritise having a, a broader diet, developing some cooking skills. You know, sometimes it's not just laziness. Sometimes they just simply haven't ever taken the time to learn how to, to cook. As we think of a, um, a client that I saw last Friday, actually, that um, is about to go move away and do a few other things. And in talking to him about his cooking skills, he simply can't, even just to cook a pasta meal, he's a bit like, oh, I don't, oh, I never have, I don't really know how to start. So, you know, there's lots of different contexts that would come along with a client. So, uh, you know, I think it's about, like Alan says, part of that reframing, I think it's about you kind of prioritising what are the... Um, big rocks for success for this athlete and then knowing you can't work on everything so you know which one of those big rocks can I start to give them some help and skills for so that they're going to get the most out of their interaction with you mm. yeah yeah and um so if an athlete you work with came to you with this question how would you think about reframing it to something maybe more constructive or helpful to them yeah, I think along the same lines of what we've just been talking about, Steph, it's really about getting in the first instance that um, 
context from them about what does outrun mean and what does bad mm-hmm. mean and then trying to have some agreement on look what you know what would be success moving forward and if it is someone that's just really um, eating heaps of processed takeaway food lots of energy heaps of bags of lollies because they're quick and easy rather than other foods the way I guess I would then work with them is trying to look at what potentially is being displaced in their diet because I guess that's probably one of the key things that I always think is a great marker to come back to these habits that they've fallen into or behaviors that they're making what's being displaced in that if it is the variety of fruits and vegetables if it's a variety of whole grains if it's a variety of home cooked kind of meals it'd be around workshopping with them what would be some small wins that we could make or how could we start to bring some of these things in and I think if you can always reference that back to their activity load that's going to be much more motivating for them to talk about well look you know what I think on your run uh, or this 100 kilometre ride you're going to do Alan like I'm really curious about how well are you going to feel if we have some wheat bix and yogurt and banana beforehand and what about we come up with a strategy for during the ride that has some particular goals around, you know, we could have an Uncle Toby muesli bar this hour and you could take, you could have your lolly snacks in the second hour and then whatever it is for the third hour. And you know what you've put out, is it hard work riding your bike for 100 kilometres, Alan? You go, oh, here you go. Um, I haven't got the VO2 max of Kipchoge, so it's a bit hard. So, you know, you know, at the end you've put all that hard work in and you've given your body this amazing exercise stimulus to make some adaptations change some muscles change your nervous system maybe build a few more add in a few more mitochondria or whatever these adaptations might be if you want to get the bang for your buck out of that we need those building blocks afterwards so let's where are you going to be when you finish your ride and what options might be available for you instead of the I don't know chicken snitchel burger and and a beer what about these other, could we have some, you know, a glass of milk and throw in something else? So, you know, I think if you can reference the choices and then why they might then make a performance benefit outside of anything to do with weight loss out of them, I find that's really helpful way to start to get them to change little tweaks. And then over time, when I think of a few of these, perhaps particularly this adolescent group that I've worked with, if you get an opportunity to keep working with them and five or six years down the track, it's really lovely when they come back to you and say, oh, gay, look, those couple of tweaks we started to work on, I can't tell you how much better I feel as an athlete now as my 25-year-old self compared to my 19-year-old self, partly because my body's getting a bit older and it's not um, repairing as quickly. But now that I've improved my diet in these different ways, I feel so so much better and they'll find that their language then starts to change and talk about how they're feeling, how they're performing as opposed to just, well, look, did I burn off the two Mars bars that I ate? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, reframing that around like what is the end goal that you're trying to achieve and you're not doing all this training specifically just to achieve a number on the scale. You're actually doing it to participate in events and perform and do all those sorts of things or feel fit or healthy or stronger, you know, whatever it is, depending on what sport you do and what level you do it at and, and why you're doing it. But I guess that the motivation there is around that end goal that's got something to do with health or performance. It's not to do with weight or body composition or appearance. Yeah, and there are some other really big rocks that I think you can work with your athletes on and you'll obviously talk to them about the context of what their individual experience is, but even some questions around how are you 
how are you sleeping, what's your injury history like, what's your illness experience. And if you've got ones that are often skimping on their diet in the sense that some of these key food groups are displaced and stuff, I typically find they're the ones that do you know, as I lead into the big event, I'm always getting a cold and I'm a bit run down or I don't sleep very well. There's usually something else that's going on. And if you can get them to start to think about dietary strategies that impact on that, that can be a real door opener and game changer for them as well and be a really helpful way to, to help them for the long mm. term. Yeah, and I think particularly those athletes who do really big volumes of training, you know, more towards the, the elite end of the spectrum. I remember I was working with a cyclist about a month ago who was referred to me by a sports physician because he just kept getting sick all the time, couldn't string multiple weeks of training together. And, you know, in his case, you know, he was out running or out riding his diet. Now, it wasn't necessarily that he was deliberately doing that. He just didn't know how much he needed to eat. So it works both ways. You know, people assume that this question comes from the point of view of, like, people are wanting to outrun that diet to lose weight. But there can be the situation where they're just not fueling enough to keep up with the excess or the, you know, the training load that they're doing. And you know, he was a perfect example of that. You know, we made some changes to his diet. And I caught up with him last week and you know, his dad said it's the first time he's ever been able to put four weeks of solid training together without having to back off the load from what was originally planned. And, and it was just because he wasn't eating enough, he was underfueled. Absolutely, Alan. I think you, you and Steph have had some fantastic discussions in previous episodes on this concept of low energy availability and when that's an issue. And I feel like that really crops into this question as well, because you will often find that it's not intentional um, underfueling. But if you felt like I ate too much pizza yesterday and had too many beers on the weekend and too many, I heard the Dr. Steph loves Kit Kat, so I went on a Kit Kat binge. <laughs> and then I okay, had these next couple of days of hard training. I'm going to deliberately under eat a little bit round those because I've got to burn off that kilojoules or, or whatever. And then they're still eating, I often find they're still eating a really good dinner sometimes. You know, dinner's really well for me or that's doing really well. But all my exercise was in the morning or earlier in the day and I really didn't eat very much around that or what I did I, I skimped on or it wasn't good choices so I feel like quite often you do come across these examples with athletes um, across all the spectrums from the really recreational athlete to the to the elite that are having periods of low energy availability and not realizing that's what's holding mm, them back yeah definitely all right Steph I'll bring you into this now and just thinking about the experience with the athletes that you've worked with is this a mentality that you come across as well this sort of outrunning a bad diet mm. concept yeah yep I think um exactly how you and Gay have described it yeah I've come across athletes that um would ask that question and then myself as well when I was younger I think I was either not studying nutrition at the time or I was just starting to and so yeah for me I, I kind of was like that I was like oh you know, I'll have the couple of muffins or some 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 chocolate. It wasn't the Kit Kat Biscoffs at the time because they weren't around, you know, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll eat those and, yeah, I feel, felt guilty um, and thought, well, well, that's enough. And, and then I kind of, it was the unhealthy um, mentality, you know, well, then I'll go burn, you know, this extra amount of energy and, um, and then I'll outrun those eating habits. And then I guess I was getting more and more into into my running and, and wanting to run longer and, and be competitive. 
And then that's when I think I started to kind of consider nutrition a bit more and what that might do for my performance. And then at the time, I was actually lucky enough to get some support from the fantastic dietitians at the AIS, so actually Siobhan herself and Louise Burke. And then I'd started implementing what they were teaching me and then I just found the the massive difference that that actually made to my running. And so I guess for me, like I was potentially trying to outrun a bad diet, but then I found when I practiced those different aspects of, of nutrition and actually started to fuel myself for the work that I was doing, I found that I actually was performing better, I was recovering better you know, I wasn't as um, prone to, to injuries. So, and I find also for the athletes I had as well, like they, again, I think like you were saying, our sometimes they're probably not always aware of their choices. And like you were saying, Gay, it may just be out of convenience that they're just opting for sometimes the more convenient options. But then when working with them and then showing them some some perhaps other ways to think about it um, and giving them you know more in terms of fuel for the work required they actually then found that their performance was was improving they were feeling better so I think like you've both said it's just about thinking of the context for that particular person because it can be different and then just just um, working out how you can educate them in relation to, to how they're thinking and see if you can help show them that perhaps all this way may be, may be better for them. Yeah, for sure. I think maybe it's a little bit like when you're working with an athlete, I'm finding more and more they're really familiar with this concept of some sort of period, periodized training or some sort of key, well, maybe we were building up for a, um, a key event and there's base miles and then there's hill efforts or then there's, you know, when you think about triathletes or cyclists, there's so many different phases of a training cycle that you would go through and, fo- and focus on uh, and I think you can do exactly the same with your with your diet when you're working with them it might match up with what they're doing or you might be looking at how we're really prioritizing um, looking after your bones how are we really prioritizing looking after your sleep how are we really prioritizing getting those lean muscle changes and okay in this um, discrete window perhaps some weight loss or fine tuning of body composition is is appropriate but that's always for a discrete period of time and then there's another nutrition focus that that you can go on with um, and I think anything that then helps take that athlete's soul in a dialogue about food off the out running and is my diet bad mm. and flips it on to these more move towards goals for them related to food I find it's really helpful. Mm. Yeah. All right, well, let's go into our bonus round now. So, Steph, you can take this away and uh, see what Gay's got to say about these questions. All right, Gay, what's one thing that people should do when they visit Tassie that they may not have heard of before? Yeah, I feel really challenged by your questions and the fact that I'm only allowed to say one thing. That's really <laughs> limiting because Tasmania has so many things available. We'll give you two. And sure. I feel like this this isn't necessarily something that they wouldn't heard of before. But I'm, I'm thinking the people that are listening to this are cyclists, triathletes, runners, that absolutely should make it part of their holiday journey to cycle or run 
probably not swim because that would be tricky. Cycle or run from Hobart up to the top of Mount Wellington. So only 21 kilometres. And the view up there I think is one of the best views that I've ever seen in the world. You've got that beautiful 360-degree view all around the um, the waterways and the surrounds and it's just spectacular. Fingers crossed it won't be low cloud and all you see is fog. Hopefully you'll, you'll get the view. And then when you come back down, I guess you want to head down to D'Angelo's in Battery Point, which is a really lovely local Italian restaurant here. And Angelo and Marco there will serve you up <clears throat> most delicious home-cooked pizza or pasta. Um, and then you can kick on for the rest of your time here knowing that you've got this amazing view to to look forward to and if I was allowed to slip in a second one again it's probably not not unheard of but I think the while watching that the Pennycott tours do mm. out of Hobart and the surrounds here is most definitely worth a um, worth a day trip mm. yeah um geez it's not an easy um climb to get up Wellington you're setting quite a challenge there <laughs> Piece of cake, Steph. You can stop at the last freight cafe just out of the springs, like 10K from the top. Get yourself an extra coffee to keep yourself going if you want. Don't have to be fast, Steph. You just no. have to, to, to do it. To get there, yeah. Um, so if you weren't a sports dietitian, what would be your kind of your different career path that you think you'd go down? Gosh, well, I already had a dab at a first career path before I became a sports dietitian and that was working in corporate world and that definitely wasn't for me. So I know that I wouldn't pick that. I do yeah. like to be active. So I wondered whether something like a strength and conditioning coach would have been a really great place I wanted to work in. But I thought it's better to pick something completely outside of your current scope. And this assumes that you'd have skills in that space, but I really think I'd love to be an author. I like writing books and I particularly mm. love romance books. So, you know, Gay <laughs> Rutherford, Romance Author of the Year, that's got I a nice ring that. to it, don't you think? Yeah, very nice. <laughs> All of my heroes and heroines, of course, would be sporting people that uh, <laughs> uh, had some, you know, aspect of sport and, and maybe food interwoven into it. So watch yeah, this space. Yeah. <laughs> And um, your favourite sporting moment from 2022? Again, a really hard one to pick and I feel like I'm going to have to pick a new sport that I've discovered a personal passion for as not being someone that ever had any ball skills growing up. Tasmania has been lucky enough in 2021-22 to get our basketball team back in the national national mm -hmm. tournament. Jack Jumpers here, I've become an obsessed fan. I think they're amazing. I've, uh, you can't see because of it's audio and not recording, but if you were watching, you could see my Jack Jumpers oh, band yeah. here and the teddies <laughs> behind me, one is wearing a Jack Jumpers um, little baby top. Uh, but when they that made the, the finals for 2021-22 back in April this year, unfortunately we didn't quite win the finals so we finished second in the ladder. But just the glee from the team and the amount of community involvement and community support that um, the Jack Jumpers have generated, it's um, absolutely fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. have managed to do a little bit of work with them but haven't quite yet persuaded them to have a full-time sports dietitian but I'll keep chipping away we'll at it because it's great to be involved in a franchise that's got such great values and is giving so much back to the Tassie community so that's been mm -hmm. my sporting highlight and a close mm -hmm. second would be the, the match that they played on Sunday they uh, were about 21 points down I think going into the final mm -hmm. quarter and turned it around and won that was pretty they were 
not here, so we were just cheering from the lounge room, but it was a pretty pretty exciting match to watch. Game, yeah. basketball speak, I'll have to improve on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and one thing on your bucket list you haven't yet done. Ooh, my bucket list is so big. <laughs> I'm going to pick for this one since I've had all these knee operations and can't cycle as much as I would like to and have taken up this other ocean surf skiing hobby um, I'm never going to sadly get to go and do Kona in Hawaii now that I can't run so that's off the cards but I've discovered there is the Molokai surf ski ocean championships that are held there um, I'm going to have to get a little bit more ballsy in the big waves and the open <laughs> yeah. swell and, and things like yeah. that but I'm, I'm working away at that so that is probably on my bucket list awesome and um, final one, do you live by any piece of advice or um, motto? Absolutely. I love collecting mottos or pieces of advice and I've got a whole book of lots of them. I think my earliest one was on a poster that a fellow runner gave me and I'm pretty sure from memory it was a Nike one but don't quite quote me on that because I don't seem to have it. And it said, there is no greater challenge than to challenge yourself. And I've always thought as someone that's very achievement driven only you ever know whether you put into your best or whether you copped out on that I don't know final 400 you were supposed to do efforts on or whatever it was only mm. you know and only you are the one I guess that can know what was really going on but uh, I think in more recent years I've added to that a quote by Ronald D D Dale Dale how do you say that the children's author oh, Roald Dahl. James oh yeah the Giant Peach. Dahl. yeah Ronald that's Dahl. it yep. and he had one that said I I'll read it behind me because I can't remember it off the top of my head it said I began to realize how important it was to be an enthusiast in life if you're interested in something no matter what it is go at it full speed embrace it with both arms hug it love it and above all become passionate about it lukewarm is no good so I think the concept that lukewarm is no good is mm. so applicable to so many things in life and I love that. Mm. Yep, yep. That's and I'd awesome. have to say, Alan and Dr Steph, you guys are never lukewarm. The Long Munch is <laughs> definitely not a lukewarm podcast and I love that. Look forward to it every time it comes out. Thank you. Uh, the the other thing fun. that's never Thank lukewarm you. is the water down in Tassie, unfortunately, so I don't know how you're uh, preparing for Molokai. <laughs> Mm. just got a no greater challenge True. than to challenge True. yourself Alan we paddled all <laughs> through winter I've got to tell you when it's pitch black dark and the sun's just starting to come mm. up and you can see the snow on Mount Wellington and you accidentally fall it off your surf ski and it's a bit cold and choppy you think oh why am I doing this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow well, awesome. Thank you so much, Gay, for your, for your time. Um, yeah, I think it was um, a, a good conversation and you gave lots of our listeners different ways to, to think about it. So, yeah, thank, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And perhaps it's particularly timely to be putting this podcast out just before Christmas, which might potentially be the biggest window of the year when that little thought might crop into an athlete's back of their mind that they might try and outrun a bad diet over Christmas. And hopefully we've given them some other ways to reframe and, and think about that and they can enjoy their Christmas period without feeling they have to outrun it. Mm, exactly. Yep. Well Thanks. said. Awesome. Thank you very much, Gay. I'm going to hand it over to Al to, to just summarise some of those key take-home messages for our listeners. 
Yep. So our question today was, can you outrun a bad diet? So I guess there's several aspects to this that we kind of unpacked during that episode, whether that question is even a good question to be asking in the first place, or is there a better way of thinking about things? But if we sort of break down the question firstly, and we talk about, I guess, those two words, outrunning and bad, are probably the main ones. So outrunning a bad diet, I guess, typically the way people would be thinking about that is it kind of refers to the the energy they expend, the kilojoules or the calories during exercise, and how that compares to the energy that they're consuming from the food that they eat. And I guess if a bad diet, quote unquote, makes the exercise energy expenditure required um, to prevent a what we call a positive energy balance, you're preventing weight gain essentially over time, unrealistic. So, you know, can you eat in a way that means that you can do lots and lots of exercise and still not be sufficient, I guess, or how much exercise do I need to do to compensate for this food that I've eaten, I guess, is kind of the way that people would typically think about this. So I guess that's kind of the outrunning concept. I guess the word bad here can imply different things to different people, but probably high calorie intake or possibly poor overall dietary quality. But I guess how high is too high is different in different people. Uh, I think what we can all agree on is that improving dietary quality is definitely likely to be helpful for people, both in terms of their health and their performance. And in most cases, it will probably have an impact on simultaneously lowering their energy intake, the amount of calories that they're consuming in a day. But it's not necessarily the goal of improving dietary quality to do that. It's sort of something that comes along as a almost a side effect of that, if you like. And I guess if we want to talk about dietary quality, uh, I'd recommend people go back and listen to episode 38A with Andrea Brackus, where we talked about dietary quality, particularly in the context of fruit and vegetables for athletes. And I guess what are the potential benefits of you know, improving our fruit and vegetable intake, knowing that the vast majority of people, athletes included, don't meet the dietary recommendations for fruit and veggies. But I guess if we think about outrunning the, the diet, whatever that is or looks like, um, essentially, you know, the energy from training outweighing the energy that we're consuming from certain foods, that's very possible in elite and professional athletes. And we do see that all the time. In fact, that a lot of elite and professional athletes actually struggle to eat enough to optimize their health and performance. And so they are essentially outrunning their diet, either deliberately, but often unintentionally, just because their training volume is so high. One, because of the hours they spend training, but two, because they can actually expend more energy per hour of training, as we described in the podcast. But this is much less likely to happen in recreational athletes because they have less time available to train and the energy expenditure in training is simply going to be less as well. So I guess the question suggests that the purpose of exercise is to allow you to, quote unquote, get away with certain dietary habits or to quote unquote, earn your food. And I guess this is really, as I think, you know, Gay, yourself, Steph, and I all agreed, you know, this is really an unhealthy way to think about the relationship between exercise and food, especially when you're training for a performance outcome. This is likely to be a big barrier to performance ultimately. And we have to remember that performance is performance. You know, the goal is not a certain weight or a certain body composition. The goal is a certain performance. And if we're not achieving that performance, well, we might have whatever body composition we desire, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be healthy physically or mentally or that we're performing well. And so there certainly there is a risk of, of either disordered eating or descending into complete eating disorders or just un, un, underfueling your training, leading to sort of 
nasty health consequences from low energy availability. I'd recommend people go back if, if you're not really sure on that and you want to hear more about that episode 24 where we talked about, you know, can you underfuel your training and what are the potential implications of doing that in that episode there as well. Awesome. Good summary as always, Al. And getting stuck into the next episode, which we mentioned won't be until January 19th or so. So that's going to be 52A. Who have we got coming on board? Yeah, so no no B episode for this one um, with the, the run-up to Christmas. But our, yeah, episode 52A is going to be how do I optimise hydration for race day? And this actually came from a listener question from a listener, Jake Sawyer. So shout out to you, Jake, over in your hometown, Steph, of Adelaide. Ooh, there you go. From Melbourne originally, but he's done the opposite to you. Mm. He's now living in Adelaide. Yep. Uh, and we're joined by our special guests, returning guest, actually, Dr. Chris Irwin from Griffith University up on the Gold Coast. So we've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast that Chris and I have been working on a literature review and a meta-analysis looking at pre-exercise hyperhydration, and that will certainly be part of that episode. But I think the question was more broader than that from Jake was about, you know, just how do I know that I'm well hydrated, not necessarily hyperhydrated, although we'll touch on that, but how do I know that I'm well hydrated prior to my, my ride or run or whatever it is that I'm doing? Yeah, yeah, common question that we get. Um, mm. Excellent. So, and then just a, a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And remember also there's more than 50 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. But you may like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them going back to November 2020. And if you do want to be notified every time that a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing, and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. And this is our last episode for the year. So a big thank you to all of our guests and everyone who has listened, shared the podcast with their friends, left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Yeah, we really appreciate it and we really enjoy doing this podcast with you all. And we will be back Thursday, the 19th of January. But just remember, we are still active on social media. So you can always sing out and say hello to us on there. Otherwise, we will love and leave you and wish you a very Merry Christmas. Yeah. See you all in 2023.